Well, as we turn our attention to the word today, um, I want you to find your place to 2 Peter chapter 1. That is where we will be first in the scriptures. Um, and as we launch into this study today, we're in the most festive time of the year, right? There is more effort and energy and planning put into the month of December than any other time of the year. And most of us uh, plan for and prepare for Christmas uh, in, in a variety of ways, right? Maybe some of those preparations have even turned into family traditions. Maybe that's putting up the tree at a certain time and getting out the lights and setting out the nativity. And if you do, you know, yard ornaments, if you're one of those yard people, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you get all that stuff out. And there's so much that goes into uh, the preparation and planning for Christmas. And all of this effort is in anticipation of something, isn't it? Something that is yet to come. Christmas is not yet here. My wife and I were just reflecting this week that, uh, man, this year Thanksgiving was the earliest it could possibly be, I think. And uh, so it's like, man, we got this whole like even extra week, it seems like, uh, to get to, <clears throat> to Christmas. But there's this anticipation about what is to come. The anticipation creates suspense. And when we see the lights and the Christmas tree and we hear the music, it points to something that is yet to come. And there's a sense of expectation, anticipation with that. Now, sometimes we can let the uh, festivities of uh, the, t- the season drown out the intentionality of what God uh, did and, and what took place in that quiet night in Bethlehem. Perhaps it wasn't quite uh, so quiet a night in Bethlehem, right? With the census taking place, there would have been many coming to the town. Uh, perhaps it was not such a quiet night in Bethlehem, right? But, but all of that, um, that that takes place in this time of the year can drown out the intentionality of God if we're not careful. And if you're newer to the Christian faith or investigating the Christian faith, you may not be aware of how intentional God was with planning for this event, the birth of Jesus, that we celebrate at Christmas. And so just like the lights and decorations of Christmas serve as a warning that something is to come, the prophecies of the Old Testament in the Bible were clear signs of the coming Messiah. So think of this in terms of bright lights, right? When you see the bright lights of Christmas, I want you to think in terms of clear prophecy, clear prophecy. Now, today we begin our Christmas series called Foretold. It's an interesting word, foretold, meaning to tell something that is yet to come, right? If something is foretold, it means it was told before the event even happened. Another word used to describe this is prophecy, prophecy, a biblical term that uh, we may not use in our daily life so much, but it's really important for us to have a grasp of it. And what took place in the coming of Jesus was something predicted long before there was a baby lying in a manger. It was something predicted many times and in many ways. In fact, it's appropriate to think that all of the recorded history of the Old Testament was intended to point to Jesus. The entire Old Testament points to him. It's crazy when you stop and think about it, the magnitude uh, that's my word of the day, by the way. I'll probably use it lots of times today, just because in my mind, that's just the magnitude of what took place at the birth of Christ, the prophecies fulfilled, the fact that all of the Old Testament leading to this reality and to this answer 
of what the Old Testament reveals to us. And so as we think about it, we want to ponder, we want to do well to stop and to think for just a bit of time over these weeks as to the prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. So you might be asking the question, what is prophecy? What is it? If it's, not a, if it's a word we don't necessarily talk about often, what, what is prophecy? Here's a definition I would like to put forward, is that prophecy is proclaiming the truth of God with a clear call to repentance and obedience. Prophecy is proclaiming the truth of God with a clear call to repentance and obedience. Now, in the Old Testament, most often the prophets were proclaiming truth that God had already spoken. We call this forth-telling. They were telling forth, right? They were speaking boldly. They were proclaiming truth that God had already spoken, either through his commandments or his laws. They were, they were reminding the people of Israel of what God had said and the consequence if they were to disobey. That was the role of a prophet, most often in the Old Testament. Now, at times, we often we see as well that there was a prediction of future events, that the prophets would declare something that was yet to come. And as we heard Davis mention earlier, sometimes those prophecies came several hundred years even prior to the actual event taking place. Now, part of the biblical study of understanding the Word of God is that in prophecy, there's uh, at times kind of a double sense of fulfillment. There's a sense of near fulfillment in which we could point to a point in, in, in history that was close at hand of which we would say, wow, that, that seems to answer that prophecy or be uh, the fulfillment of that. But then we also realize, boy, there's, there's kind of this double fulfillment of there's this also future element of that. So prophecy is is, is a bit of a, a challenge to grasp as you wrap your mind around it, but it has, in a sense, both this near and far fulfillment at times. And we call that foretelling, right? This prediction of the future. And so during this four-week series, we're going to focus on the foretelling of the birth of Christ, those prophecies. We're only going to get to a few of them, but some of the prophecies that were foretold about the birth of Jesus, Many of them several hundred years, again, before Jesus even came. And so there's two reasons why I want to focus on this. First of all is, in a sense, the wow factor of it, right? In life, there are certain things that just kind of, you know, draw us in, that, 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 that give us a sense of awe, a sense of wow. And I, and I think this is one of those that, that ought to be true of us, that as we study the prophecies of the Old Testament, we look at the fulfillment of Jesus, there's, there ought to be this sense of, wow, really? God did that? And so that's one element. The other is a bit more practical, perhaps, and even fitting to your daily life, and the sense of what do fulfilled prophecies teach us about God? What do they teach us about God? What are some really important questions that we all tend to ask in life in one way or another about God? How can prophecy answer those questions? So that's really the, the two goals of the next few weeks is to kind of further instill in us this wow factor of the prophecies fulfilled and answer some questions about God that we all tend to to ask. So first, the wow factor, right? In case you think talking about prophecy is 
boring, uh, let me share with you something from a scientific study that was now performed several years ago, uh, way back in 1950. I won't ask who was around in 1950, but 73 years ago now. So it's a, it's a study that has been around for some time, and I've mentioned it to you uh, before, but I think worth drawing us back to uh, attention of it. Uh, there was a book written by Dr. Uh, Peter Stoner called Science Speaks. It was a book published by Moody Press. Uh, and uh, Dr. Stoner was the chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena City College at the time. Uh, the subtitle, if you will, of his book is Scientific Proof of the Accuracy of Prophecy and the Bible. The, uh, the research was made most popular by Dr. Josh McDowell. Uh, some of you may be familiar with one of his books called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And uh, in his apologetic study of Christianity, he references this study by Dr. Stoner in there. And that's really where the popularity of it began. But under the direction of Dr. Stoner, research was done by his students at the college in a class called Christian Evidences. And from a scientific vantage point, they studied eight prophecies of the Bible regarding the Messiah. Their goal or their quest was to determine the likelihood that all eight of these prophecies could be fulfilled in one man from all men who have lived from the time of the prophecies to the current day. So for us, we're even 73 years further down the road, right? Um, so for example, let me put these two together for you just to get an example here. Uh, uh, those born in Bethlehem, right? Uh, many have been born in Bethlehem, men born in Bethlehem over the course of history. Um, and then of those men born in Bethlehem, how many were crucified? So that narrows down, right, really limits the number of people that that would pertain to. So just in those two elements of prophecy, we see combining those two, we really get a sense of narrowing uh, the field. And so when Dr. Stoner did the study, he was asked to be reasonable and conservative, and I think uh, others have uh, demonstrated and, and given testimony that that was the case. So this is not an outlandish study, um, as testified by others. But this was this is what Dr. Stoner uh, determined here. He says, the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies is 1 in 10 to the 17th power, right? So 10 with 17 zeros behind it, right? That's the likelihood that all eight of these prophecies could be fulfilled by one man. And this is what he wrote of it. He, he tried to give an illustration to wrap our minds around that. He said, suppose that we take 10 to the 17th power number of silver dollars and we lay them on the face of Texas, not on that map that hangs on your wall, but like literally on Texas, right? So they, they will all cover uh, the state two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state and blindfold a person and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time, providing they wrote using their own wisdom, right? 
Now, that's, that's an incredible picture to imagine, right? The likelihood of eight, those eight prophecies coming true in one man. Now, Dr. Stoner went a bit further. He said, if we add just eight more for a total of 16, it takes the chances of one man fulfilling all those to one in 10 to the 45th power. And this is how he described that. He said, let us try to visualize this as we did before. He says, take this number of silver dollars. If you make these into a solid ball, you will have a great sphere with a center at the earth and extending in all directions more than 30 times as far as from the earth to the sun. If you can imagine the marking of one silver dollar and then thoroughly stirring into this great ball and blindfolding a man and telling him to pick out one dollar and expect it to be the marked one, you have somewhat of a picture of how absolutely the fulfillment of 16 prophecies referring to Jesus Christ proves both that he is the Son of God and that our Bible is inspired. Certainly, God directed the writing of his word, right? So, again, you just step back and go, man, what an amazing picture and the awe of that and the wonder of that. He furthered that a bit more and said, what about 48 prophecies that takes it to 1 and 10 to the 157th power? Now, that's incredible and magnified by the fact that many scholars believe that Jesus fulfilled up to 300 prophecies from the Old Testament in his birth and his life and his death. So just imagine what likelihood that would entail, right? 300 prophecies, and every one of them fulfilled. Now, Dr. Stoner's conclusion was this. Any person who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. Just let that sink in for a second. Right? This isn't some, our, our belief in Jesus is not just some mystical, you know, possibility. What Dr. Stoner is concluding is that the, the factual nature of it, demonstrated by the fulfillment of prophecies, removes all doubt that Jesus is who he said he is. And so we could conclude this, that profi- the prophetic fulfillment in the birth of Jesus is God removing all doubt about who Jesus is. The prophetic fulfillment in the birth of Jesus is God removing all doubt about who Jesus is. Now, the amount of prophecy in the Bible is one of the things that makes it unique among religious books. Now, there is no emphasis on predictive prophecy in the Quran, for example, or in the Hindu Veda and so on. In contrast, the Bible repeatedly points to fulfilled prophecy as direct proof that it is God who speaks. So in 2 Peter chapter 1, where I invited you to turn to, we read this about that prophetic nature of the word of God. It says, and we have the prophetic word, in verse 19, more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Anybody pay attention to a lamp in a dark place, right? Why? Because it's your guide, right? He's saying, man, this is what prophecy is, right? This is that, that light, and we ought to pay attention. It's that lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, 
Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important to acknowledge the fact that the Bible also declares there were false prophets, right? So what Peter is writing here are those true prophets, the ones whom God truly appointed, who gave true prophecy, and the the result was 100% accuracy. That was the distinction between a true prophet and a false prophet was the accuracy. And for those true prophets who were truly from God, what they said came true every time. And so we see the significance of prophecy being a testimony, right? That lamp shining in a dark place. Furthermore, in Hebrews chapter 1, it says this in verse 1, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. These are the Old Testament prophets that we get to, to read of in the Word. But in these last days, right, which are our days... He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So, The author of Hebrews draws us into this reality. Hey, in years ago, right, in days past, God spoke through the prophets. Now God is speaking through his son because he was the fulfillment. And he was the one that those prophecies pointed to of saying, this is the Messiah. This is the one whom I have promised you from the very beginning. And Matthew, as we turn to the gospel accounts of this wonderful story of the birth of Christ and most often we look at Matthew and we look at Luke. And, and Matthew uh, relies upon the prophecies of Scripture to declare truth. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, we read an example of this statement. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now, he mentions that phrase here in following the wonderful revelation of, of the angels telling Joseph, hey, it's going to be okay, right? He says, and these things took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Matthew uh, mentions that phrase in his gospel account at least 12 times, meaning in throughout his testimony, throughout his account of the life of Jesus, what did Matthew depend upon? He depended upon the fulfillment of prophecy to convey truth and to bring the conviction of, man, this is God's truth because the prophecies are fulfilled. Um, so in Matthew's account, the gospel of the prophecies play a large role in the, the body of evidence given to declare truth. Now, we know Matthew's audience was largely Jewish, and so they would have had a familiarity with the Old Testament. They would have had awareness of, of those prophecies uh, and so on, so that was why he drew into that so much. But we see the significant role that prophecy can play in the understanding of God's truth. And so we've kind of delved into the wow factor of prophecy, looking at the magnitude and the fulfillment of of those things in Jesus. We understand the significant role of prophecy and the Word of God throughout. And now I want to 
just for a few minutes today, explore one of the prophecies that was given about Jesus, and that is that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. The Christ would be born in Bethlehem. Uh, Perhaps the most familiar text we go to at Christmas is Luke chapter 2. How many of you read that at some point during Christmas, right? Maybe you do that as a family at a particular time um, and so on. So Luke chapter 2, and we realize there what Luke testifies to is that because of the decree of Caesar Augustus that a census would be taken, we know Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem because that was where Joseph was from. And so Luke chapter 2 tells us, Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. How interesting, right? I mean, the amazing thing about this text is not so much the census itself. That was not unusual in the day, but the timing of it. Right? We know why Mary and Joseph had to go. That was where Joseph was from. But even in that, we recognize the, the lineage of, of Joseph and, and so on as, as accounted in, in, in the gospel accounts. And we realize the, the place of that and of Mary. And, and then we realize the, the significance of Bethlehem, um, that they had to go. And God was using the census to get Jesus where he needed to be, Right? Because the prophet Micah had declared the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Now, even the chief priests and the scribes, which were the smart dudes of the Jewish faith in the day, even they acknowledged that this was the case. In Matthew chapter 2, in that account, what we read is this, after Jesus. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, Of the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, right? Because there was a rival king, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. That's the prophet Micah. And the story goes on then. Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So Bethlehem declared, not only by the followers of Jesus, by even Jewish religious leaders of the day who uh, many of them rejected Jesus as the Messiah. But yet they said, yes, Micah the prophet declared that Bethlehem would be the place. And so they quoted Micah 5.2 in their response to Herod, but let's read it specifically as well. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. 
says this, but you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are <clears throat> too little to be a, excuse me, among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. So Micah predicted that Bethlehem would be the place. It's testified to by others, even in the Gospel of John. Um, in chapter 7, verse 42, John says, Has not the scriptures said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So Bethlehem is clearly testified to as the birthplace of the Messiah. And Jesus was there because of the hand of God directing the circumstances getting Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem for the census. And what do you know, while they were there, it was the time for her to give birth. So the prophecy fulfilled. That's the only one we're going to look at today. We'll look at others over the next few weeks, but the prophecy fulfilled. So on one hand, I just want us to just pause for a moment and just go, man, how amazing it is. And there's so much more to be looked at. But just in one example of God, some 700 years before the birth of Christ, testifying to the fact Bethlehem is going to be the place and orchestrating the circumstances to make that happen. The hand of God fulfilling his word. So the question I want us to follow that up with is, what do fulfilled prophecies teach us about God? What is it we could take away today that, that maybe beyond just the element of like, man, our view of God is just big and grand and vast and amazing because he can do that. He can fulfill a spoken word even after several hundred years. What does that teach us about the character of God? What do fulfilled prophecies teach us about God? We're going to ask that question every week. Because I think our understanding of God begins with questions. Have you ever had questions about God? Right? At what point in life did those questions begin? Maybe for some of you, you were raised in a context where, you know, you didn't have much religious influence in your home. Maybe you never went to church. Maybe there was never any conversation. Maybe, maybe it took you a little while, right? A few years in life to, to begin thinking about God. For some of you, you were born in a Christian home and your parents had you in church, you know, three days after you were born and, you know, you never quit, right? So your conversations about God began early. Whatever, whatever your context is about your relationship with God, one thing I think is true of all of us is that we had questions or have questions. And one of the questions I think tends to come up most often and is really so foundational to the others is this, is God trustworthy? Is God trustworthy? Can we trust him? Will God do what he promised? In some regards, the very temptation of uh, Satan in the garden toward Adam and Eve was questioning this very foundational truth of God. Is he trustworthy? Did God really say the enemy was causing them to doubt 
the trustworthiness of God. Did God really tell you everything? Can you trust that God told you the whole truth? That was his pursuit. And God promised, even in that point, in answer to sin, way back in Genesis 3, that there would be a seed of woman that would come and crush the head of the serpent, right? So even in God's grace, he gave to us a promise. Way before Micah even existed, God promised that there would be this seed of woman that would come and be the answer to sin. And God was revealing that all along the way. So the numerous prophecies fulfilled represented by this one in Bethlehem today, I believe teach us that God demonstrates he is completely trustworthy and will do what he promised that he is trustworthy. Now, I realize trust is um, a challenge in life. For some of us, trusting others is difficult because you've been hurt or there's been disappointments, there's been unfulfilled expectations, right? You've placed some expectations on others that they have not fulfilled, and so you struggle to trust people. I've heard people say, maybe you have said or heard, heard others say, like, I have trust issues. That's how we often express that. I have trust issues. I have a hard time trusting people. I have a hard time thinking of them as dependable or reliable or honorable. Um, and we can project our lack of trust in people to a lack of trust in God, leading to skepticism or keeping a distance in relationships, right? We keep relationships kind of out there because we don't want to let somebody in here because we don't trust them. We become guarded. Now, one of the things about trust is that it is, in a sense, earned. We have to see someone acting in a trustworthy way uh, in order for us to consider them one that we would trust. Think of it, for example, you know, you go on vacation and you have something at your house that needs maintained. You have some plants that need watered. You have an animal that needs cared for or something of that nature. And you're, you're getting ready to go away uh, at a distance where you can't do that. And you have this question you have to wrestle with is, who do I trust with the keys to my house? Right? Who do I trust with the keys to come in to our place and to take care of whatever needs to be taken care of. And so you think, who, who would I be able to trust? So you go through this calculation of who that might be. And it is similar in our relationship with God. As we evaluate the activity of God, if you will, as we see the fulfillment of his truth in his word, we arrive at some conclusion, whether we believe he is or not, but is God trustworthy? Does God act in a trustworthy manner? That's an important question. I think for our purposes in this study, we look at the prophecies themselves and we see God declaring truth. We see God making promises and we see God every single time fulfilling his promises. Concluding for me, yes, God is trustworthy. 
And trustworthy toward what? what? What's God working toward? Well, he's working all things toward his glory and for our good. Our good, sometimes we know it. Our good sometimes is not what we wish, what we desire, what we want. But it's what God knows is best. Do we trust him to know what is best? Do we trust that his glory is the ultimate purpose of this world, that even our very lives are, are to be lived to the glory and the praise of God, not for ourselves, but to the glory and praise of God, our creator, our savior, our Lord, our heavenly father. God is trustworthy because in all things he's working for his glory and for our good. So as we think about these things, I pray that the Spirit of God, my hope for you is, as we finish today, is that you just are able to take that, that one next step, whatever that is for you in life, of trusting God, trusting Him with your life, trusting Him with your children, trusting Him with your grandchildren, trusting Him with your singleness, trusting Him with your marriage. Trusting him with your education, with your career. Some of you that are young, high school, college age, right? I mean, am I willing to trust God in what my future looks like? Is God trustworthy? I believe yes. And I invite you to join me on that journey of living life in such a way that we trust God with every facet in every element, and seek to live to the praise of his glory in all things, because he's God. Let's pray. Father, as we dwell on these things today, I pray that your spirit would guide us and direct us, Lord, all of us, each and every single one of us in a different season of life, facing different things. Some of us staring down hard things regarding health. Some of us wondering about our future and our career. Some of us working through family dynamics, Lord, whether it's marriage or parent-child or whatever it might be. And I pray in the midst of all of those realities of life, that we would be a people who trust you and who come to you and open our hearts and give you the keys to let you in, to take care of that which is so important. We trust you to work all things for your glory, and for our good. Strengthen us by your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.